Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the I Guess That's Why They Call It The Elton John Podcast podcast. As far as radio silences go, I'd say that this one falls into the inexcusable territory. But I will be making some excuses, don't worry about that. I'll be making some apologies as well. I'm sorry to my listeners. What can I say? I found Elton Land to be a little bit stale of late. There's just so much mainstream Elton out there. The Diamonds, the Tour, the Book, the Film, the Sense of the looming West End stage show adaptation of the film. And against all of that, anything I've wanted to do has just felt like a weak protest of some sort. Me moaning. No one wants to hear me moaning. And I wanted to give something positive and I just wasn't feeling hugely positive. Um, some correspondents have asked me for my opinion on the book and I do think I owe you all an opinion. And I do have some positive things to say about it. First off, I think it's really well written. It's funny. And it seems to be thoroughly fact-checked. I spotted a couple. And there's a bit of unfortunate time compression going on, particularly 1969, which just felt really hurried and a bit confused. It made it sound like Elton was actually gigging with Dee and Nigel before they recorded the Elton John album, which obviously wasn't the case. I guess the problem is one of space in the end, and the important thing is to write something that's coherent, and I think that's what they've managed to achieve. For, for my part... I could make a little bit more sense out of those early business dealings I've read. The problem with the Keith Hayward book is that he just jumps back and forwards a little bit because he tells separate stories based on individuals, which is fine. It makes a lot of sense to do it that way. But it means things like signing the publishing deals, signing the recording deals, signing the management deals, all get completely shattered in that. And it makes it really, really hard to make sense of it. And after reading me... You hear his side of it and you understand the business side better than you did before, or well, I did at least. But, okay, and there is a big but, I'm sure you can guess what my overriding feeling about the book is, and that's one of disappointment, missed opportunity. It is good to have some new anecdotes, I suppose, from the horse's mouth. Meeting Elvis, for example, was fun. But I'd swap all of that for just a little bit of insight into the songwriting or recording process. The only thing that really awoke the nerd in me was Elton remembering a band called Octopus rejecting when I was Tilby Abbey. Amazing that he remembers that. There's um, some information about this little interaction between Elton and Octopus in the liner notes of last year's comprehensive Plastic Penny collection called Everything I Am. In there it says that it was Tony Murray and Nigel Olsen from Plastic Penny who'd been the ones who'd taken a liking to Octopus. they played together at the, at the end of 68. And then they brought them into Dick James's office in January 69, presumably. Dick was there. And uh, they played them some songs that they thought they might want to record together. Paul Griggs from Octopus said the meeting was interrupted when a short, chubby guy with glasses came into the room. Elton, of course. He says his face was familiar and they'd seen him working in a record shop in Berwick Street in Soho. 
And uh, there was Elton bearing an acetate of Teal Be Abbey, suggesting they might want to record it. In the end, they didn't. He doesn't say why. But they did come back and record some tracks and a whole album, actually, for Larry Page's Penny Farthing with Tony Murray as producer. Incidentally, it says in those liner notes that Tony was given the option to join Elton's band. Maybe this was sometime before the recording of the Elton John album after Empty Sky. But he turned the gig down because he felt that Elton wasn't going anywhere. Um, anyway, back to the book. I particularly liked the new Liberace story. It means that we can now date exactly when Elton John came out as gay to his mum. Sunday, the 21st of February, 1971. I don't know if we needed to know that, but we do now know it because instead of going to see Liberace at the London Palladium that night with John Reed, that's what had been arranged, Elton says in the book that he stayed back to make the phone call to his mum. It was fairly pressing that he get it done as well because he'd already moved in with John a few weeks prior into their flat at the Water Gardens. John Reed still went to the gig. This is the funny story in the book, and the book talks about how he shrank into his seat as Liberace called out ever more despairingly for Elton to get over his shyness, stand up, take a bow, take the applause of the crowd. He wasn't there. The film, I record, has got a really weird ghostly echo of this story. In there, Elton comes out over the phone to his mum while she's watching Liberace on the TV. And it's clearly the 1972 Royal Variety performance because she's waiting for Elton to come on stage. Um, it's a really horrible scene. She's just got zero empathy for her son. And it's also the first time that we see the physical side of John Reed on screen. And it's in that way, it's a bit of a one-two punch from Sheila and from John. And it sets the tone for the rest of the film. I found it very interesting, anyway, how the story morphed out of its telling in the book into this pocket-sized, dramatised version in the film. And it also made me wonder, when did John Reed start to show that side of his character? Was it February 71? October 72? Was it later? It's also dizzying. It's hard to know what's real. Elton was coming to pieces in February 1971, though. His diary was way too full. Whose fault was that? Five gigs in Scotland in the week building up to that Liberace show had to be cancelled because of exhaustion. All the while he was recording with Long John Baldry, he was preparing for the first Madman sessions, which were on the 27th of February. He was preparing for the Royal Festival Hall orchestral show, the first one on the 3rd of March. It's quite horrible to think that the relationship with John might have already started to go sour when all of that was going on in Elton's life. One thing that's become clearer for me as a result of Elton's soul-searching across the book and the film is the grim reality of life with Sheila Fairbrother. Before, I have to admit, I took her for a warm positive person. I think I'd read too many Daily Mail articles. Yes, you could see from there that she was selfish and prissy, and she certainly brought out the worst in Elton, 
But at the heart of it, I took her for someone who was committed to Elton's well-being and basically just great fun to be around. Maybe not a particularly responsible person, but someone who was positive. But now I can see her for what she was. And that's a cold, abusive mother who was able to turn on her charms, but only when it suited her. I was a bit taken in by her as well. Not that I ever met her, but I feel bad, really. It's completely changed how I see Elton. And I think it might be the same for many fans and casual observers alike. So anyway, 2019, that was Elton's big push for the mainstream, but also for immortality. And I guess it's mission accomplished. He's had his biggest year pretty much in forever, certainly since Candle in the Wind 97. I would have done it all very differently, of course. You know, a scan of the diaries, perhaps. Some proper 50-year anniversary releases. Um, a songbook-type best-of. Well, not a best-of. Backed up by a documentary, a really worthy documentary with lots of bearded interviewees wandering around Denmark Street and Soho in general. I think you can imagine the popular resonance that that would have had. I suppose what I'm saying is they appear to know what they're doing, at least as far as the mainstream is concerned. There was something in the mainstream media that caught my ear recently. It was something that I'd consider to be interesting to the hardened Elton fan. And that was Elton himself laying out a tentative plan for future gigs after the farewell tour in an interview late last year with the BBC. My dream thing, if I do perform again, I would like to do something like Kate Bush did at the Hammersmith Apollo and do a really lovely produced show. But I want to delve back into Captain Fantastic, and which is my best album. And just, you know, I've sung these songs nearly 5,000 times, some of them. And I want to do songs that I think are just as good as the ones that have been popular for 50 years. Alan Marina, Come Down in Time, Original Sin, that haven't had the chance to emerge. I made a whole show about this and I trashed it. I tried to visualise what such a residency would look like and what songs Elton might choose to play. I went all in. I was talking at great length about the visual side of it. And in the end, I didn't really feel like it was worth an episode to itself. And so instead, today, I thought I'd run through my set list briefly at the beginning of the episode and throw in some suggestions as to how I'd stage it. And then, more importantly, I'd ask my listeners if they had any better ideas. So, my fantasy residency. This is a five-act piece. Act one is solo piano set initially in the Northwood Hills with Elton talking about his early heroes and bashing his way through something like Great Balls of Fire maybe with a couple of dancers in the background spilling their beers and gently brawling in the corner it's something to add some authenticity You shake my nerves and you're out on my brain Too much love drive the man insane You run my willy and wipe a silly as great as great balls of fire I made you laugh when I thought it was funny You came along and do me, honey I changed my mind, this world is fine Goodness gracious, great balls of fire Kiss me, baby
The set morphs somehow into the front room of Froom Court. At the turn of the 70s, so we're going to need lots of brown and orange there, maybe some string art on the wall. The upright piano is white now, don't know how you're going to do that, but on the screen behind Elton we see imagery of Bernie's earliest lyric sheets, um, wherever they can be gathered from, they're all over the world now. I thought that Elton could talk about in this section and play some songs about his loneliness as a kid, his need for a brother, and then moving on to his sexual awakening. And I've chosen songs throughout the whole thing that Elton hasn't played to death, and indeed some of them that he hasn't even played at all. All of them are going to challenge his voice as it is these days, but he can still hit some notes. The highest note in the current set is a B-flat 4 in Levon. He shall be Levon, something like that. And there's also an A4 in Someone Saved My Life Tonight in its new key. He does have plenty of help from the band on his top notes these days, and he's going to need a whole lot of that still. There's also a lot for him to relearn here which may be the bigger hurdle for Elton. Anyway, Act One, intimate and confessional, continues with the greatest discovery, going into all the nasties, which maybe I've grown to like a bit more than when I dismissed it in episode one. Then into Elton's song. We could have a couple of male dancers waltzing through it. I thought that would be bring a tear to the eye. Finishing up with Voyeur. Because, yes, we all read that bit of the autobiography. Thanks for the images, Elton. Anyway, end of Act 1. Act 2 is called Rejoice, and it's set at the Troubadour. Nigel's there, alongside Matt Bissonette. We're going to need some double-decker bus imagery behind them, and uh, we'll see something else in the backdrop that looks like Quincy Jones and his family taking their seats. Elton's got on something akin to his dungarees and starry T-shirt. Out he comes. Somehow, this three-piece have got to get something of that raw August 1970 energy onto the stage. Can they still do it? Even if they get just 20% of it, that won't be bad. I'd choose Amarina first. This is the best live version, by the way, in my opinion. From Cleveland. Your other tracks here are going to be a bit of a matter of taste, but since we're highlighting underplayed songs, I'd go for Country Comfort, Bad Side of the Moon, and 60 Years On. But there's an argument for putting tracks from 71 in there as well, like Holiday Inn, which they played a fair amount in 71, but I'll leave it at that. Let this bit of the set be a tribute to Dee Murray. End of Act 2, 
And into Act 3, this is the full band going through highlights from Captain Fantastic. One thing you can say for Elton and Bernie is that they're extremely good at self-mythologising. I don't think there's another act that's proactively built their autobiography into their output in the way that they have, what with both Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dog Cowboy in 75 and then the Captain the Kid in 2006. Credit for this has to go to Bernie for thinking of it and then for finding a tone that was appropriately gritty and authentic for Captain Fantastic. And then in 2006, finding a tone that was humble and basically human um, for Captain and the Kid. And although the biographical story's been done to death recently, there's really no better focus for my made-up residency, which is why I'm devoting eight songs to it either side of the interval. They'd have to start with this, with the title track. Someone clever can surely make Alan Aldridge's artwork come to life, with the orbs floating over some kind of England for the verses. Then, the balls touch, as it were, and we end up with some kind of pinball imagery in the chorus. See, I've thought this through. Bitter Fingers follows. That's gotta be a full production number, I thought. Bring Denmark Street onto the stage, have dancers costumed as Aldridge's ravens, toads, owls, man stuck in the swan cello cage thing, along with Dick James himself holding the giant key. You've got record executives there with their multiple grasping fingers holding their giant pens and their contracts, laughing at the keyboard player's hollow haunted eyes. You get the idea. Next up, is we all fall in love sometimes going into curtains, of course. I had a load of ideas about how I would set these songs, but I won't bore you with them. How would you do it? More to the point, how would a young, almost unknown artist or set designer do it? Because Elton needs to get some new blood in for a project like this, not just the same old, same old. Anyways, that's end of act three. It's time to get your ice creams. Act four, of course, is highlights from The Captain and the Kid. I guess this counts as the Elton version of Kate Bush's A Sea of Honey, which she played in full in her Hammersmith Apollo residency. Something more recent, but still high quality. This is exactly what Elton means when he talks about people not listening to his recent material, because there's some very unjustly ignored music on this album. I'm no visual artist, I'm no set designer, but like I say, I've thought this through a little bit and I came up with a fairly obvious idea of opening the curtains to a stage that's decked out 
with Elton John paraphernalia, just like the cover of Red Strikes Back, but with the addition of a tram in the background. Something that represents how he found himself after the first wave of success and after the second wave of success as well. And there's barely room for the band on the stage and more and more stuff is brought out over the first couple of songs. Track one is Tinderbox and you can stick some imagery from the 80s music videos on the big screen, glasses, the pianos, Linda Lovelace, all that jazz. Nostradamus said I predict that the world will end at half past six. What he didn't say was exactly when. Was he listening to the radio? Was he listening to the government? Well, he got spooked and away. We've been running hot up until today. But a wind of change blew across our sail. We were coasting on a winning streak. We were kings until the power failed. After this, Elton could play a snippet of a solo, mournful, I'm still standing, and then the band can bundle into its sister song, And the House Fell Down, which has unbelievably never been played live. Some of the clutter on the stage can now reveal itself to actually be dancers. They can get up and move around almost imperceptibly. The lights swinging in the noisy wind, the walls closing in, and then Andy Warhol on the screen behind them, peering through a peephole, holding his Polaroid camera. The song ends, the house crumbles away, and we just get the bridge, just Elton and the piano. Oh, and a choir as well. Why not? It doesn't cost me anything to say, and a choir as well, and a choir as well. This recording is from Elton's 60th birthday show at the Madison Square Gardens. It's as close to your song as we're going to get in this set list. Same key, similar patterns in the piano and especially in its bridge. 
It's such a sharp lyric from Bernie, this. It can refer to almost anything. In the context of Elton's life, it could be about deciding to wear the ever more ridiculous stage costumes to inflate the caricature, or to choose to go sober and address yourself, which I think is kind of what it's about mostly. But it's also about stepping up a level, opting to do Disney, even if you don't go the whole hog and sign up to have your own theme park, or just finding the strength to look for love again. It's a universal lyric in that way. It means whatever the listener wants it to mean. And then the last song in this act is Blues Never Fade Away, which has got to incorporate imagery of the ever-expanding list of people that Elton has lost over the years. End of Act 4, into Act 5. And that can be whatever you want it to be. This is deep cuts, whatever you want to hear. I've gone for Susie dramas. This train don't stop there anymore because he's going to want newer ones. Healing Hands, which they never really got right. Blues for my baby and me, of course. And play it as a tribute to Bob Birch as well, who apparently always wanted to play it. Original Sin, which Elton himself mentioned as a possible. And then something like Where To Now St. Peter, something with Caleb, Lady Samantha. Bring Caleb onto the stage. Give him his moment. It's overdue. Then Harmony, with the choir, why not? And then Blessed, dedicated to Elton's family. And then, oh no, hang on, Wait, oh, I need to get burning buildings in somehow, I don't know. How am I gonna get it all in there? You may be able to compress a more impressive set list. You may be able to get more original visual ideas into your fantasy residency i'd like to hear them how would you present it could you record some audio do it record some audio and i'll stick it in the next episode or you can send me a set list it's eltonpodcast at gmail.com still and yeah i'll play something if you send it to me if it's any good right fantasy residency over and done with and i wanted to get something familiar, something to get me back on my wobbly podcast legs. And I thought a sensible way to do that would be a part two episode. And so here it is, more songs they gave away, following on from episode 14. I ended episode 14 with Elton's demo of the outrageously sentimental Sweetheart on Parade. For me, one of the most beautiful songs to come out of Elton's collaboration with Gary Osborne. As I said in that episode, it was written for a female to sing. And chances are that that female was Kiki D. Kiki's last release on Rocket was in 1978. So Sweetheart on Parade probably was written a little bit too late to find a home on there and it ended up on the publisher's shelf for a number of years. Eventually, it was picked up and given a sex change by Albert Hammond in 1981 as Hero on Parade, that's the one I'm talking over. But later on, it was recorded by Judy Collins. Um, she's an American folk musician, 
Frank Noel from France and Donatella Rettore from Italy. Don't have the accent, do I? I'm not really a fan of any of those recordings. They all sound desperately 80s, but I do love that demo. And here on Parade's not bad, even though it's a bit truncated. But staying with Kiki, for now, there's a couple of her songs that fall into the category of songs they gave away and then ask for them back again, if that's all right, please. And one of those is Hard Luck Story. Elton's version was recorded in the summer of 75, but Kiki had already recorded and released her version as an A-side, single A-side, in March 74. This song was written from the female perspective as well, and that's the only way it really makes sense anyway. Kiki's version is quite funny. It drips with snark and sarcasm, and she's rolling her eyes about her husband's complaints about having to go to work. It's quite an enlightened lyric for Bernie, and uh, when they switch the genders around for Elton to sing it, it just strips the song of that sarcastic tone, and it makes the chorus essentially meaningless. And I can see why they did it, because it is a, a banging tune. It must have been a really fun song to play. And Kiki, Kiki's version wasn't a hit, but this version is the one for me. Maybe that's just because I'm less familiar, but it's got more groove, and her voice is so stupendously sexy. I can't work out who's playing here. I'm trying to find some credits. Maybe someone's got the right set of sleeve notes out there, but I don't. My sense is that this was recorded before the Kiki D band was put together. Because unlike the album that followed it, which was I've Got the Music in Me, this single was produced by Elton and Clive. So there's a fairly good chance, isn't there, that that's Elton on electric piano. And as far as I can hear, there's a pretty good chance that's Nigel on drums. It's a real possibility. Listen to the tone of them and how he's playing. This might even have been a leftover track from the sessions for Loving and Free, which then would mean that this could be yet another Jamaica song. This is all conjecture, though. We don't need to know whether or not it's true to enjoy the song. It's a good song. Here it is in full.
The other song that flew Kiki's way and was then beckoned back again was Cage the Songbird. This was originally recorded in the autumn of 1975 during the sessions that she did for an album with the LA-based producer Robert Appere. I don't know how you say that. He'd recorded Neil Sadaka for Rocket, so he was a bit of an in-house guy. It was eventually shelved. Kiki says that she and the label just agreed that the sound of the record, which was generally very sparse, wasn't right for her at the time. As you'll hear, it wasn't really sparse, the, the approach to the title track. They threw quite a lot at it. It was eventually released in 2008 and it was collected again on Kiki's The Rocket Years, which came out last year. Here's Kiki's Cage the Songbird. Promises, no more lies, fell flat upon an empty stage before the audience arrived. Returned in time to the cheaper seats. She never knew what lay beneath. Just a dated handbill we found between the sheets. Let down before the final curtain. Shallow heart that left her cold. So cold. She left in Faithful fans who miss her. You can cage a songbird, or you can't make a sing. You can trap a free bird, but you'll have to clip her wings. Cause she'll soar like a heart when she flies. She'll die like an eagle when she dies. I think I prefer Elton's folky take on it rather than all the detail and contrast that this one's got going on. It builds well, but to me the end of the chorus just seems to be really unfocused compared with Elton's recording. I also don't think Kiki's take on the phrasing and even the melody in places really does much for the song. Perhaps they decided to shelve the album by March 1976, which was when Blue Moves was taking shape, and that's why Elton felt able to claim the song back at the time. I think there's going to have to be a Songs They Gave Away Volume 3, because there are still two more Kiki Elton songs that I haven't included yet. The Man Who Loved to Dance, which is an awesome song, by the way, and super cool. But I'm not going there now, that's enough Kiki. Instead, I'm going to step sideways taking the bird reference with me because there's quite a few birds in Bernie's lyrics there's the skyline pigeon of course you've got the circling herons in Michelle's song you've got the phoenix in grey seal it's not really a real bird but anyway it's there you've got buzzards in Indian sunset you've got that generic high flying bird you've got that unforgettable bit of imagery the brittle as a bird simile in the last song and of course there's birds itself from songs from the west coast i'm sure i've missed a load but you get the point bernie likes writing words about birds 
And during the sessions for Made in England in 1974, he gave Elton another birdie lyric, the brilliantly titled Building a Bird. Although we don't have Elton's demo, we do have a recording of the song by no less than Nigel Olsen from his 2001 album, Move the Universe. Nigel on drums and vocals, Davey on guitars, Bob Birch on bass, Guy Babylon on keyboards, and also Guy doing the string arrangement, and it was produced by Nigel, Davey, and Guy. 
And although she's not on this track, Kiki's there on the album doing vocals, so it's a real family affair, this one. It almost has a three tools sound to it. You can imagine Jeff Lynne getting a hold of the song, giving, giving it some sheen. I like this song a great deal. Melody-wise, you can hear Elton everywhere in here. It's a simple set of chords, but there's some elegant surprises in the melody which help to keep it interesting. I think it would have made a worthwhile addition to the already pretty strong Made in England. Maybe it was a bit too down-tempo and they were trying to keep that up. It's not far off being single material, although the lyrical content is a little bit baffling, perhaps. I wonder what the thought process was here, just handing it over. Maybe one day... We'll get to hear Elton's take on it. There's got to be at least a demo out there. I sounded like I was being mean about the lyric from Bernie, but I think it's a really good one. It's a great title. It's a good lyric. It seems to me to be about the process of lyric writing. Bernie there on his writing chair, which he sold recently, crafting away, using his well-worn tools and devices and he's constructing something and it, it might not always be a living, breathing creature of beauty, but it will certainly be able to move its beak a little bit and produce a passable squawk. Next up, there's a bit of a head spinner. Elton, without the help of any lyricist whatsoever, contributed this track, Runaway, Do You Love Me?, to a Scottish duo called the MacDonald Brothers in 2007. Here's a bit of a taste of the song. Donald Brothers, now known as just The Max, got to the final of The X Factor back in 2006 and they were signed to Simon Cowell's Psycho management company for a couple of albums. Despite the fact that he took the mickey out of them at pretty much every opportunity he could get on the show. They released two albums with his support. The World Outside, um, the second of them, featured this song as a bonus track and they also released it as a single. I puzzled for a little while trying to work out the Elton or the Rocket connection here. The label that they released their music through, called The Music Kitchen Limited, was set up by two Scottish musicians, Stuart Woody Wood, who was ex-bassist with the Bay City Rollers, and then songwriter Gordon Campbell. After a bit of digging, well, no, okay, I just Googled him. I read in the Dundee Sunday Post that Gordon signed as a songwriter to Elton John's publishing company 
1983, and then I could still see him involved in 1988, producing Anya Major for Rocket. And she was the actress from the Nikita video. She was also the actress in the Apple Computer's 1984 ad before that. So anyway, either Elton had the time to write this inoffensive little ditty in the mid-2000s as a gift for someone who was who can't have been any more than a peripheral character in his life, well, I'm guessing, but it seems unlikely he knew the guy that well 20 years earlier. Or Gordon have managed to get hold of at least one uncirculated demo in his time at Rocket, and then he got permission, somehow, to give it to his act. This seems to me to be the more likely option. I contacted him to ask him, but I've not had a response. So for that reason, I date it to about 1986. It seems to me to be um, a sister song to some of those 86 Leather Jackets era demos. That's my random punt anyway. And I'm left wondering, what else has Gordon got up there? There's a couple of 1978-era tracks written by Elton and Gary Osborne that I'd like to turn to now. The first one is called Smile That Smile, which was written right at the beginning of their collaboration at the same sort of time as Shine On Through. And it was touted around by Gary for a while. Um, he eventually found a taker in Neil Bashan, an Israeli singer who was being produced at the time by Mark London, who I mentioned in episode seven. Mark was Lulu's husband. She was on Rocket at the time. But maybe Mark was friends with Gary. Who knows who knew who? I don't know. Here, then, is a snippet of Elton's demo merging into Neil's version. It's a bit unsatisfying, but that's what we've got. I find it disconcerting how similar their vo voices are. He's definitely doing an Elton. And mm, the songs are also in different keys, but it's just a moment of discomfort. It'll be fine. Same old line. And if you wake up a 
can see why it took a while for this song to be snapped up, can't you? The lyrics are barely there. And musically, it's very middle of the road. And then Bashan's final finished track doesn't add much to the demo. They're both lacking inspiration. The fact that Elton's taken a very recognisable bit of ticking and reused it in his demo suggests to me that he wasn't particularly invested in this one. But the second Single Man era track is a much better song. It's called Roll on the Second Coming, um, which Elton donated to Cliff Richard's protege at the time, Garth Hewitt. I'm not going to play all of this. Again, I'm only able to share a snippet. Although it seems incredibly unlikely to me that Rocket will ever serve the fan and put this material out, I just don't want to do anything to jeopardise that. There could be an amazing um, single man collector's edition if they wanted to. And that's never going to happen if the likes of me go around satiating whatever demand there may be for this material. And this is a great track and it deserves a proper release. And maybe before we all die, they're going to do something about it. Um, so, a snippet. I'm going to do it the other way around this time. Garth Hewitt's somewhat tame version, which was produced by Cliff Richard, rolling on in to Elton's full band recording of the song, which I'm afraid I'm going to fade out before the end. Roll on, roll on, roll on the second coming. Roll on, roll on, roll on the second coming. Oh, Jesus, Jesus said free. Bad rabbi, Jesus, and no.
Martin's having a lot of fun with that piano. It sounds like a 1971-era gospel track, not a million miles away from the likes of Rock Me When He's Gone. It's also a bit Dan Dare-like with those quick descending piano breaks. Quite how they got to this topic for a lyric, I suspect we'll never know. It's possible that it was written for Cliff himself originally, but he turned it down because he was steering clear of religious material during his rocket years. So he chose to use it to launch another act, not particularly high, as it turned out. Next track was one that Elton did release, House of Cards, here in full in its first version by Linda Kendrick. Stop the fly When the day's time to get you And the living 
Linda Kendrick was a British singer who flirted with success for many years during the late 60s and 70s. She broke out alongside Marsha Hunt in the UK production of Hair in 1968. She had a bunch of singles on Polydor and Phillips in that period and later on in the mid-70s on Pi. I've seen it said that she was just one hit song away from being a star. But then again, aren't we all? There's two very different opinions of this track in the music press that I was able to read. Cashbox in the States loved it. They called it a five-star smash. They praised Vic Smith's production. They praised Mike Moran's arrangement. And they predicted that it would jump to a top chart position. In the UK, Record Mirror were a bit more realistic, saying perhaps Elton should have also lent her producer Gus Dudgeon because Vic Smith hasn't done too good a job of putting it together. I'd say that my new transfer of this song, which is a lot better than the one that already existed on YouTube, doesn't really bear that up. I think the arrangement and the production stand up pretty well to the ravages of time. In the end, though, I don't see any trace of Linda Kendricks's House of Cards charting anywhere, so it's Record Mirror who were more in touch with reality here. But Vic Smith would see some success, though, as Vic Coppersmith Heaven, he ended up becoming the Jams producer. And he was also the producer for Johnny Warman, um, whose song Screaming Jets got a special mention in my episode 29 because it's my favourite non-Elton track to have been released on Rocket in the 80s. Well, and the arranger, Mike Moran, he also did okay for himself, or maybe not, depends how you look at it. He went on to co-write and record Where Are We? Rock Bottom Tragedy. We got that one for Eurovision. That was two years later, in 77. They came in a very respectable second. In 79, incidentally, Linda Kendrick herself put a song forward to become the UK entry for Eurovision, but it wasn't selected. In fact, she came in last in the selection process, a mark of true quality, as Elton and Bernie would tell you. The question remains as to whether or not House of Cards was deliberately given over to Linda Elton recorded his version during the January 74 sessions for Caribou, and it doesn't really sound like a demo, and clearly it was overlooked when it came to the album itself, and then it was overlooked again when it came to the B-sides in favour of Six City and in favour of Cold Highway, which is somewhat similar sounding to it as well. YouTube uploader extraordinaire Ronnie Friend in his uh, description of his upload, quotes Bernie as saying that it was only after Linda's version was released in March 75 that they decided to put their one out on the B-side of Someone Saved My Life Tonight. But I'm, I don't know where that quote comes from. But that would seem to suggest that they weren't entirely happy with the release. The Record Mirror review starts off by saying Elton, John and Bernie Taupin wrote this one for Linda, which was pretty decent of them. And if that wasn't actually true, then it will have irked them a little bit. How she got hold of it, I'm not sure. I've looked into it. I can't find any evidence of Linda being a part of Elton's circle during the time in question. 
Um, but then again, her Wikipedia page says that she, well, not Wikipedia, Discogs page rather says that she toured with Elton and Kiki in the USA. So who knows? Maybe she was a support act for them briefly. Someone passed her a tape of the song. I don't know. Maybe she was even involved in the recording of the original. It sounds like a weird thing to say, but I did notice that if you listen to the end of Elton's version in a stereo extraction, you can hear a female vocalist. Is this Linda? More conjecture. As for the song, I'm not sure which version I prefer. The lyrics are a bit muddled here. Linda's singing them as a kind of advice song to a female friend, whereas Elton sings them to a girl, which probably makes a bit more sense. But in the end, it's one of those extended Bernie metaphors, which I find quite difficult to swallow. Musically, for me, it's a bit more accomplished. It's got that folky verse going into a what is it, sort of doo-woppy, vaudeville-type chorus. It's difficult to place, but it's got, an, as the Americans would say, it's got a bit of an old-timey sound to it. I like the tune. It would have it would have fitted okay on the album, but maybe it's just a bit samey. But in the end, I'm surprised they sat on the song for as long as they did. Anyway, it's time to head back to somewhere where I feel most comfortable, 1969-1970. stroke And here is Elton and Bernie's Season of the Rain, which was picked up by Night People, who were on Larry Page's Page One Records. And it came out on their Soul LP, and it was also on the B-side of their single called PM. I'd be very surprised if that is an Elton on piano there. I'd place this as a late 68, early 1969 composition. It sounds like Elton trying to write a pop hit still, but he's got one ear directed towards the underground. And you can see why it didn't make it onto Empty Sky or Elton John. It's just a bit too chipper for what Elton was doing or trying to do at the time. The Night People came out of the Bournemouth music scene. Their drummer, 
Christopher Fergie Ferguson, some great nicknames in today's episode. Um, he'd been in several bands before bringing the Night People together, including the Ravens in the early 60s, alongside a very young Robert Fripp and Gordon Haskell. There's an extensive new biography of the band, and it's recently been added to the Bournemouth Beat Boom blog. And it's worth a read, but I'm not going to regurgitate it here. Apparently they were a big hit on stage, they supported the Beach Boys at one stage and they were a regular at the Marquee in London during the same era as Bluesology, but they never managed a hit on record, unfortunately. And it seems like their album on page one was well regarded, but in that era bands played their own music, they didn't play covers, so they were a bit of an anachronism. Um, and this was probably uh, put into high relief when they were persuaded by Larry Page to dress up in giant banana costumes and to become the Banana Bunch for one single, which was a cover of the theme song from the Banana Splits TV programme. Uh, they released that in October 1970. This was very much the uh, last gasp, although it was re-released on DJM in July 1971 by popular demand, according to the press release. Um, and on DJM, because they probably saw the value in the Elton Connection, Season of the Rain was chucked on as a B-side. What an oddity. OK, I'm going to bring this episode to an end, noting there's still a good number of tracks that I haven't got to yet. There's the two Kiki songs that I've already mentioned. Let Me Be Your Car, which I don't enjoy. There's the excellent Remember, which was apparently recorded by Sinatra. Um, and Sinatra fans are actively calling for its release because there's not much material left in the vaults for them, unlike some artists. And there's also For Wanting You by Marianne Faithful, and then Lonely Heart by Sylvia Griffin, which I already played in episode 29. Well, that's six songs, maybe enough for a mini-sode. Maybe a few more are going to pop up in the meantime, there's some um, ones that don't really belong, like Today's the Day, which Elton may have written for Plastic Penny, but they didn't release it, so it doesn't really count. But it needs to fit somewhere. Anyway, I'm just thinking aloud now, sorry. Um, I'm going to go out on this one. This is Nice and Slow, released by Lulu on her Rocket album, Don't Take Love for Granted, in 1979. As I'm sure you'll know... Elton recorded his version in late 77 during those uh, aborted album sessions with Tom Bell. And then for some reason, he left it on the shelf. He didn't release it in uh, 79 when he was releasing singles from those sessions. It was probably dead to him for some reason. And he handed it to Lulu in 79 for her album. Um, well, obviously, we got to hear it from Elton in 89 and in the complete... Tom Bell, and then an extended version was uh, was a Peachtree Road B-side, I think. And Elton's version is amazing. Lulu's is uh, not so good. The arrangement's just not as strong. The rhythm section doesn't have the heft of the original. Um, but we do have percussion from Ray Cooper, so I shouldn't be too mean about it. We also have production from Lem Lubin, who was producing Judy Zook at the time. Righto, I'll leave you with this one and I'll see you next time and I promise it won't be so long.
girl on 